TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. Welcome to the Bike Nerds Podcast. This is episode 88. Sarah, um, have you ever seen Back to the Future? Yes. So if you will remember when you are traveling in the DeLorean time machine, the magic number to hit to go back in time is 88 miles per hour. I didn't know that. That's when the flux capacitor kicks in. That doesn't feel very fast. Kind of feels like a strange number, right? <laughs> yeah, and I feel like I potentially went 88 miles an hour like last weekend. <laughs> on your bicycle? Not on my bicycle. Right. In yeah. Car. Yeah, 80, 88 miles per hour. That's the that's the magic speed for uh time travel apparently. So if wow. you if you rewatch that so- if you rewatch the movie, uh that's the moment where the flux capacitor kicks in, the car gets a little electricity on it. And leaves burning tire prints as it transports itself into the future <laughs> or the past. It feels so attainable. Yep. Yep. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just, I mean, you just push the pedal a little harder, right? I yeah. wonder, was 88 miles per hour, I wonder if in the 80s, was that was that a difficult thing for like a no. off-the-shelf off car to achieve? No. I don't know anything about that, but I feel like 100% confident that that wasn't hard to achieve. Okay. Okay. Anyway, I wasn't driving in the 80s, so I don't know. <laughs> I don't either. <laughs> um, you know, so I, you know, I don't really have any other. Um, uh, there's no significance to that comment. We're not going back in time on this episode or into the future. Maybe, maybe well, we are. Maybe a little yeah. in the future. Hey, hey, there we go. It all came there's back around. Segue. That was purely but- accidental. But before we get to that, yeah. How is, how's Launching Bike Share going? Launching Bike Share is going great. It's still really cool to have 600 bikes in a warehouse. They're being built up to be smart. So the smart kit is what B-Cycle calls the forward-facing touchscreen. And we've had a bunch of B-Cycle and Trek folks in town installing that and testing it out and kind of buzzy that people know that that the bikes are here and hopefully at any moment at our next podcast i'll actually be able to share a real live launch date well i was i was gonna say it's like t minus 20 days yes no 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 comment no comment (laughs) are you feeling any pressure no I'm sure I'm internalizing it all, but I feel relatively calm and cool. We have a great team. Well, you're, are good. you're not personally responsible for installing a smart kit on no. 600 bikes. No, I feel personally responsible really for once it's launching that actually people purchase memberships and ride the bikes. Nice. That's like 
19 days away? <laughs> Look, we're we're not just, talking. We're not I, doing countdowns. If I just right keep now. guessing numbers, will you uh, acknowledge yeah. one of them? <laughs> no, nope, I will not. <laughs> okay. okay. What's going on in your world? Uh, here's a question. Is spring here or is, or is this beautiful weather just a, uh, just a tease for us? I don't think spring has officially started. I did just learn that spring actually runs to like June 20th. Yeah, that sounds right. Which was a surprise to me. Mm -hmm. So it's nice where you are. Well, you know, Colorado is beautiful all the time, but but yeah, this weekend we were like up in the 60s yesterday, and I think 50s today, sunny, you know, it, it feels great. I might go for a nice bike ride. I was biking around all yesterday. It was beautiful. It was like 72. Yeah, that's beautiful. Sitting on the yeah. porch, drinking some mimosas. Of course. Uh-huh. Pear and Prosecco is my new morning oh. drink. Ooh. Pear juice and Prosecco. Nice. Are you hand-making pear juice or purchasing it? I'm purchasing it, but I'll, you never I'll, know. I'll tell you, it's, it's your morning drink, like week weekday morning <laughs> drink. Just a little Prosecco to get the day started. Yeah. You know, people do their things differently, and that's that's uh-huh. what I do. Uh-huh. All right. we'll so a, we'll have a good inter- intervention podcast in the future. Here. <laughs> um, you do you or do you not own a three D printer? I do own a three D printer. How? Why? <laughs> what is the story? All right, and I. Uh, so here's the deal. <laughs> Are you slightly embarrassed that you own a 3D no, printer? No, no. I actually, <laughs> I just used it for the very first time today. I okay. just got it unboxed, set it up. It's totally awesome. My mind is kind of reeling for all the, the coolness that you can just create something out of nothing. Um, here, So here's the motivation behind it. I was looking online for some plastic stands for action figures <laughs> right as as one is want to do all right so as as you and other listeners know i have a lot of star wars toys and but i i purchase stands for those star wars toys the, the star wars figures from the 70s and 80s have little holes in the bottom of your feet and you can purchase these acrylic clear acrylic stands that have a little peg and you put the the foot into the little peg hole. The Star Wars stories toys uh, stand up, no problem. Problem solved, right? Well, I also have a bunch of He-Man, Masters of the Universe toys from the 1980s. Now, when they were making these back then, nobody thought about that. You know, 35-year-old men and women would want one one day want to own these and display them on their shelves. And there's no peg in the bottom of their feet. Thus, my search online for a stand that would hold Masters of the Universe uh, figures. And as I got into it, I I saw that you could buy them, but people were just 3D printing them and then selling them for like $4 a piece online. And I thought to myself, self, uh, you could print these yourself and not pay $4 for them. So then I started this rabbit hole, like the rabbit hole search (laughs) of 3D printers. Like, What does it take to buy one? How much are they? Uh, how hard is it? Basically, I landed on buying a sort of an entry level model. It was it was under two hundred dollars, and um, it arrived about two weeks ago. But I've been traveling and haven't really had sort of the time to sort of come down into the basement and unbox it and set it up. But Ethan and I did that this morning, 
And the very first thing we printed was an action figure stand for a Master of the Figures toy, Master of the Universe toy, um, a, a design that I found online. It took about an hour to print it. So are you going to start selling these? No. Because there has to be other people like you out in the world with the same struggle. Maybe, but but they can go buy those other people that are selling them. This is this is purely purely for me. And if if I don't do anything else with the 3D printer except make these stands for my own toys, I'm going to be totally happy. For for under 200 bucks, you know, it you calculate out how many stands I could buy online for that and it's pretty pretty quickly I will have uh, recouped my recouped my money, but the possibilities are endless really. What we things we could print. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. I don't even know what they are. But Ethan wants to make a bunch of Pokemon toys. That's we, exciting. We, yeah, we found some designs online for that. So, yeah, we're um, we're three D printers now. Whoa! How much room does it take up? You know, it it's it's um it's the size of uh I don't know. It's not big. It's like fifteen inches by twelve inches deep, maybe. It's it's it's, oh. it's like it's like a regular printer. I didn't, I don't have like a huge one. I'll will send you a photo. It's not big. I guess I saw the I guess the video you sent. I'm a impressed that I knew that it was a 3D printer as a first guess. But I guess it didn't feel that big. Does it make a lot of noise? It's a little. I mean, it has a lot of little motors in it, and so you know, it's a little noisy. If I had it running right now, you would hear it over the microphone. Um, but. But you know, I told it to print, and I went upstairs, and you would you would never know it was on. It's not it's not super loud. So, what material like do you buy like like little cartridges of plastic that you put in? Yeah, and then that yeah, yeah it's kind of is, like um, is it yeah, liquid ever, or like gel like? No, 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 no. It's it's hard plastic, and the the three D printer melts it and then, re, oh. and then reassembles it. So it looks kind of like a spool of a weed eater film that you would put into your weed eater to do the to do the edging outside. Familiar, yes. Yeah, that's what that's kind of what it looks like. So you can pick different colors. There are different colors, yeah. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this new it's, future. It's cool. For you. <laughs> I think you should get one. Yeah, I mean I could make like I don't know what I would make. Well, that's the, that's the whole thing. That's the right? beauty. I can make flower vases. Yeah, I actually thought about that. I need some new little pots for my succulents upstairs. Some of yeah, them, exactly. Some, some of them have grown up. Could I make a little pot for it? Yeah. Maybe that's in the shape of like, uh, you know, a space helmet or something. Well, that feels a little excessive. Like but... a stormtrooper helmet that you put a little succulent in? <laughs> that's cute. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I like that. Yeah, I mean, who know? Who knows? The possibilities are endless. I can't wait to follow along. It, but it makes like printing on paper just seem so boring. Yeah, oh. news alert. Nice words. News <laughs> alert. I can print those words so you can hold those them. flat, flat <laughs> words. Yeah, boring. but again, but if if I do nothing else except to make these stands for these figures, uh, I think it's totally worth it. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I love the so innovative. And and I bought you know this is like a super basic model so it only does one type of plastic I, you know there's there's a there's a big rabbit hole you can go down into and it, the it looks like there's like a price break at about five hundred bucks is anything under five hundred is sort of on the cheaper side and kind then of it, the same product. yeah yeah and then it jumps to like fifteen hundred on up and there's a lot of uh, a lot of variation in what you can do 
the, the the more expensive models and the quality changes and the materials change and lots of possibilities. I I don't think I'm going to go there anytime soon though. We'll see. So let me know if you need like a pair of sunglasses or something. I'll I'll get them printed. Yes, thank you. I'll <laughs> keep that in mind. <laughs> Anything that's plastic, I can make it. So is the plastic? What's the sort of like environmental impact? Well, this this particular model, one of the reasons I got it is because it uses a biodegradable plastic. Um, what? Yep. That's so cool. Yep. Holy moly! I know. It's so, it's the future. Welcome to the future. For over 25 years, Bike Fixation has been designing and manufacturing bicycle parking and infrastructure products to help cities, neighborhoods, businesses, and schools become more bike-friendly. Bike Fixation has collaborated with architects, city planners, and transportation engineers to ensure their products are some of the most durable, innovative, and intuitive infrastructure products around. And for as long as Bike Fixation has been making their products in Madison, Wisconsin, they've been standing shoulder to shoulder with many of the Bike Nerds guests in supporting efforts to make bicycling more safe, more accessible, and more fun. Why? Because Bike Fixation believes a better world includes more bikes. To stay up to date on what Bike Fixation is doing for bike parking and infrastructure, visit bikefixation.com slash bike nerds. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. So speaking of the future, we're going to talk about the future today. I love it. I'm love glad it. I'm glad um glad you were responsible for choosing today's topic and leading this discussion. Just didn't I just didn't have the capacity to uh to deal with that this week. So I'm glad that you're uh running the show here. Thank you. I obviously had the capacity to come up with a theme, but not to come up with any experts. So we we are the experts for this podcast. (laughs) So, yeah, so I was thinking this week that especially around our conversations probably last year around Dockless Bike Share really having a high level of BC investment. I got thinking that there is a ton around shared mobility and transportation from autonomous cars to even freight logistics that are being heavily invested, not only through venture capital investment companies, but also through large, you know, companies from Apple to Amazon to Ford, BMW. And to me, from my perspective, it feels like this is sort of shifting in terms of how transportation you know, the past has potentially been led by by cities and, and different funding streams. And so I wanted to talk about, you know, how the future of transportation is being shaped now by private companies that have, you know, billions of dollars. So the the current kind of price tag on the global mobility market is seven trillion dollars. Wow. That's a lot of money. Yeah. It's a lot of money. And that includes, kind of to my previous point, everything around shared mobility. And then I got interested in the upcoming Shared Mobility Summit, which I've attended in the past and I've thoroughly enjoyed. And the sponsors this year range from Ford to Bosch to Uber and Zipcar, as well as some other 
kind of car sharing companies that all are supported, you know, by, you know, large, large DC investment firms. I'll have to admit, Sarah, I am, I don't know a lot about this particular topic. Um, and so I feel like some of my discussion today might just be questions and I don't know if you'll be able to answer them, but Maybe there's uh, going to be a bit of speculation um, on here. It's not really, uh, I would say, a forte of mine to have this discussion. It is not for me either, which I think will make it more interesting. I right. think it'll give us an opportunity to maybe fine-tune some of our questions and then bring on a, a guest who actually knows what they're talking about. Interesting. Yeah, well, I mean, I think you're right. It is interesting, right? You you and I and others will sort of read news stories. We'll see headlines on Twitter, right? So-and-so company just got, you know, $20 million in a Series A round. Uh, so-and-so has raised, you know, enough VC money for, you know, this multi-million dollar expansion. But at the end of the, you know, I, I don't know that I've really thought about the subject much more beyond that, right? What's sort of the larger scale, larger scale sort of global implications of private investment in public mobility and transportation options? You know, there's probably there's probably a number of different levels to sort of explore here, right? There's like what you know the capital sort of piece of this, right? How where's all this money come from and where is it going? Then there's probably a number of implications about the future of just mobility very broadly, the future of mobility as it relates to sort of equitable access and connectivity to people, you know, so on and so forth. I don't, I don't know really where you want to take this, this stab at this thing first. Yeah. Well, I think I want to just start kind of, so a lot of what I'm working off of is a article that we'll share when we post this podcast, but it's actually done by Goldman Sachs in May of 2017. And it really kind of, does this sort of macro definition of cloud mobility. Mm. So their argument is that we're moving from a world where people own their own personal car and studies really show that while personal car use may be decreasing, personal car ownership is not necessarily decreasing, but there's now being provided this other option that they're calling kind of cloud mobility. So you know, we're moving from a world where people own their car to one where they consume mobility. So using apps and, you know, things that are talking to a cloud and whether it's connected to Uber or on-demand transit or even bike share, um, that these companies that I just mentioned are almost kind of bidding for consumers' journeys. You know, what's most convenient, um, what app works the best, what technology makes the most sense. And I thought that was sort of an, I had never really thought about this sort of like cloud mobility network as, as a term. I had not, I was not familiar with it until I started getting into this article, but it does kind of make sense because really the transportation sort of movement and innovation is very, very heavily technology based, um, which I think may be why there is this level of investment because there's probably a play from data or technology that can be moved across everything from a car share app to, you know, a freight logistics FedEx sort of application. Um, but then from your point to the equity piece, you know, moving all of these things towards a sort of a cloud base system that, you know, includes access to data and Wi-Fi 
you know, wh- what does that do for communities around the world that that's not a part of their their daily life was something that kind of immediately popped to to my mind. Yeah, I, I read the Goldman Sachs report and I it was it was really fascinating. And what's interesting about sort of this this concept of cloud mobility, you know, they sort of present it as the concept that people in cities are untangling the relationship between sort of transportation ownership and transportation mm-hmm. usage, right? That, you know, the the idea that I have to own my form of transportation, whether it's a car, I guess it could be, they don't mention bicycles, but I guess it could be a bicycle as well, or, you know, a scooter or whatever sort of other transportation device or technology that you actually use. The idea that there is a chain, they've sort of, they've sort of, present this idea that there's a change in the way people sort of perceive transportation and that there's a growing um, inclination to utilize services beyond where you might actually have ownership of some, some other form of transportation. However, I thought it was also interesting. You just mentioned this, but maybe we should explore it a bit. They also mentioned that, um, that doesn't mean that the ownership is actually going to decrease over that period of right. time, right? That people can separate ownership and usage, but they're looking at it through a through a lens of having more choice and more options. But it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to, you know, for instance, get rid of their cars. That this this Goldman Sachs report predicted, you know, that despite all of these changes, car ownership is going to survive. And that it's unlikely that people are going to give up their own personal cars um, as a result of this. I, I don't you know. Do you have any thoughts on sort of like how cloud mobility it doesn't isn't sort of why why are the why are the concepts disentangling but the actions are not? So I think that you know cloud mobility. I think also kind of. You could also use sort of like the movement towards share, the sharing economy piece. And I think people are willing to you know, participate in a sharing economy, kind of looking at, um, you know, Uber or some of the other other things. But I think that there's drawbacks to that. You know, there's loss of privacy. You know, there's maybe a deviation from quickest routes just using sort of like a, you know, ride hailing services. Mm-hmm. Um and I think, though, when you look at it, and as, as we know through kind of our conversations with people across the country, you know, sharing economy is great and has its benefits. But I do think there's still at least in, in North America, um, this level of social status that owning a car has, um, and not only the social status, but also the convenience that, you know, you are able to, if you're deciding to opt out of any of these cloud, mo- cloud mobility options, you do have this backup and that's your personal car to use. Um, the article did kind of just touch on, and I would be really more interested in sort of, you know, China is just kind of blowing up um, with these cloud mobility pieces, but there's not a ton of data about how Europe is changing. And, you know, I think Europe is interesting because the way cities are built, they are there's not necessarily a big personal vehicle ownership, whether it's a social status or convenience piece. And so, so I would be interested to kind of dive deeper from almost like a, you know, country basis. You know, what does a personal car mean to you and how does that affect, you know, that consumer's participation in, in the cloud mobility economy? 
Yeah, I actually think that was one of the most interesting points of this whole um, paper that they released. This, they noted that the areas where cloud mobility had the biggest potential and strongest possibility of sort of really taking off were in predominantly wealthy capitals in Asian countries. Um, they sort of mentioned U.S. cities and some European cities. I think they called them willful adopters. Yeah. Um, which 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 is sort of like a nice way of saying like we're not really sure what's going to happen there because people have a tendency to sort of you know prescribe some sort of identity to their transportation and that it it's it's just interesting to note right that as we sort of talk about the trends in mobility we have to be it's interesting to sort of think about you know are we being careful when we're actually talking about the U.S. concept uh, the context of the U.S. of U.S. cities because. You know, even sort of these big investment firms are sort of noted are making note, you know, very, very um, specifically in these reports that, you know, this this may or may not work in the U.S. Um, given a whole host of other reasons. And so if we're not if we're not careful in, you know, how we describe transportation trends, we might just read an article like this and automatically assume that that's, that, that, that that movement is also happening here in the U.S. And, and in fact, it may not actually be. Yeah, absolutely. I also thought that they went kind of deeper into, you know, that, that ride hailing, which is the term that they used, which I think is awkward, but whatever, um, ride sharing is not actually kind of the only option that p- people are really looking at investing in terms of how transportation is changing. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going to read through a list of things that they're sharing. And I would be, be interested kind of on your perspective about how you think that tra- changes kind of public transit that is supported by, you know, city dollars and federal dollars and meets, you know, has a, has a ridership and a coverage that Ideally, in the city, you know, reaches a variety of incomes and a variety of, you know, demographics. So, you know, there's all their, you know, business models that are everything from shuttle services. You know, Via is an is an example of that where, um, you know, there's a shuttle service that really kind of focuses on a block. And so Via will collect customers from a nearest block and, you know, charges a really low, flat fee um, that's different than Uber and maybe is even competitive to to transit. And then there's a similar company called Chariot, which was recently acquired by Ford via is connected to Mercedes. Um, and these are both operating in a few um, North American cities like San Francisco. And then you have kind of car sharing services like car to go or Zipcar. And then you've got the peer to peer model, kind of like the Airbnb style of allowing car owners to make money by letting someone else use their cars. Um, and all of these kind of business models is really to kind of connect people with different kind of forms of transportation. I just wonder how it does it disrupt public transportation? I mean, I think the answer is probably yes. However, maybe not. I, I don't know. It's it's a great question. You know, to think and I don't of- know if we have the answer, but. Yeah, I, I I don't know that we actually do, but you know I can definitely see. You know, so here's a, here's just a personal anecdote, right? I do remember a couple months ago I had to go to a doctor's appointment. 
doctor's office was a little bit off the beaten path from a sort of a transit access. So I actually I actually took the bus to get there, but when I was when my appointment was ended and I was leaving, I was going to have to wait, you know, 45 minutes to to wait on the next bus to sort of come back by the doctor's office. And rather than wait on the bus for that, I actually, you know, got a lift ride and got went right back home straight from there. You know, that's that's a super simple one-time sort of personal story, but you know, if you ma- imagine if that sort of scenario happens, you know, hundred thousand times a day in any sort of metropolitan area, you know, those those are those are potential riders for transit trips who are now able to call, you know, transit on demand, um, essentially, you know, a lift and pay for that individual ride uh, myself. And I think I think you know to maybe to make that a bit a bit more global in terms of your answering your question you know does do these kinds of services impact transit i just read a report recently that talked about um how uber and lyft ride sharing services were adding millions of new miles of vehicles miles traveled to cities so rather than rather than people driving less because they have access to sort of on demand transportation services through one of these services um the the studies are beginning to come out and showing that driving rates in cities the number of miles that people travel are actually increasing by a substantial amount so if i'm a transit user now i'm actually waiting on the bus a bit longer because there's Mm -hmm. more cars on the road driving more miles so it's slowing my transit service so it's that's kind of in sort of an indirect way in which transit is being negatively impacted um, by those kinds of services. Yeah, the the article made, it was very small point, but that emerging market cities that do have a limited public transportation infrastructure, I think we could use Memphis as an example. That is, you know, Memphis is currently, you know, doing a deep, really authentically talking to Memphis residents, you know, how can our transit matter be better, you know, what sort of investment in technology do we need? You know, how much millions and tens of millions of dollars do we need to raise? And um, the article kind of just kind of briefly talks about that, you know, is it conceivable that, you know, if there's an increase of these shared car-based transportation options or other sort of these cloud mobility options, you know, does that replace or decrease development and sort of your traditional public transit systems? Because you know, I think to the point we made to kind of look at John Forrester and early Ashto days and in our previous podcasts is, you know, if someone's coming to the city is actually like, this isn't a problem anymore. All these private companies have come in and maybe to the to the eye of the public have fixed a transportation problem. You know, how does that affect public transportation development, especially in cities, you know, I could I don't know about disrupting, you know, New York or Chicago who, you know, have successful, um, highly utilized transportation options. But I think about cities that are having that ongoing struggle from a public perspective, um, kind of similar to our point about, you know, dockless disrupting traditional bike share. Does this disrupt, you know, public transit in a positive or a negative way? I don't know.
If you're like me, you use internet search engines every day to go down a rabbit hole of artsy, fixed gear enthusiasts, blogs, videos, and photo journals. But sometimes I worry that my obsession with skidding bike tires played over tranquil electronic dance music is being sold to unscrupulous advertisers or that the money being made from my search results is being used to fund groups seeking worldwide automobile domination. What if I told you there's a search engine out there that invests their profits planting trees and regenerating deforested land around the world rather than selling your personal information to the highest bidder? Ecosia is the search engine for people that need accurate and quick search results, but that also want to help the planet and keep your information private and safe. Here's how it works. You search the web with Ecosia, search ads generate revenue for them, and then Ecosia uses this income to plant trees. When you search the internet with Ecosia, you don't have to worry that your personal data will wind up in the hands of the car lobby. Ecosia believes that an individual's personal data, including their search queries, are their own business and no one else's. So far, Ecosia has planted more than 20 million trees, and their goal is to plant 1 billion by 2020. Come join the community and search for a cause. You're going to search the internet anyway. Why not plant a tree while you're at it? Visit ecosia.co slash bike nerds to plant your first tree today. That's ecosia.co slash bike nerds. E-C-O-S-I-A dot C-O slash bike nerds. And now we're back with the Bike Nerds podcast. Well, you know, I think we could take a look at history um, to help answer this question. You know, we've we've done a little deep dive in sort of the history of bicycling and bicycling advocacy. And, you know, we've made note of where there have been similarities in issues or policies or programs that people were dealing with, you know, 100 years ago and made note of how we're still kind of dealing with a lot of those same issues, problems, and um, policies today. I think if we looked back, and again, I'm not, a, I'm not an expert on this, but if we looked back at the history of public transit here in the U.S., what we'd actually find is that most public transit in the early 1900s was actually run by private companies. Mm, that's a good point. Um, your streetcar systems, right, were all sort of individually owned systems by a private company. Um, some of the earliest bus routes were as well. And at the end of the day, all every single one of those companies went out of business because it's very difficult to maintain high levels of standards and make money on something like you know, public transportation as a public good. Um, I don't. Again, I don't know the, the sort of the details around what caused those public companies to go out of business but you know at some point in at some point in our history of public transit we actually made the switch from private ownership to public ownership of those systems i think that goes back to just kind of to the dockless pieces it's just so it's, I mean, it's just too soon to tell what what all the money that's being thrown around towards the, these goals will will end up landing. I really wish we were in Back to the Future and we could. Oh, we don't want to go backwards. We want to go forwards. Well, we we should go backwards so that we can um, understand. You know, how not, not to make the same mistakes again. Yeah. I. You know. As I think about it a little bit more broadly, there is a model of very successful private transportation ownership and systems here in the U.S. Do you know what I'm talking about? 
they still exist today. They were created more than a hundred years ago. No. The railroads. Ah, fantastic example, wagon shoots. Yeah, you know, so 1800s railroad companies began to pay for the infrastructure, right? Through oftentimes through exploitive uh, labor practices. Yes. Uh, modern, you know, slavery of uh, various ilks and forms. Uh, but they created their own infrastructure, right? The railroad lines themselves. They were financed by, you know, we wouldn't call them venture capitalists, but, you know, for the early to mid 1800s, they probably are the equivalent of venture capitalists. You know, these are, these are big tycoons of industry um, pouring, you know, who knows how many millions of dollars into building rail lines that cross this country. Um and they also created laws and programs during that same period of time at the federal and state level, which gave, which provided them a level of autonomy and um, access and sort of freedom to operate how they would want to operate for all time. You know, uh, we used to joke about in the when I was working for the city that in terms of level of power, there's uh, there's the federal government. And then there's God, and then there's the railroads. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. In terms of like, you know, in terms of like the kinds of power that they held over, you know, their railroad lines. They're they're not asking you uh, about where the where a crossing can occur. They're telling you as a city, as a as a community, you can or cannot cross the railroad at this point in in time. They hold they hold tons of cards. They have lots of legislative power that's been built into uh, the U.S. legal system for you know hundreds of years now at this point, and and they're a fully self sustaining private for profit business entity that that manages a lot of transportation. So imagine, you know, maybe that example is sort of a full blown like, you know, let me ask you this question: How often have you ever? Um, how often has a community or you personally ever really benefited from private rail systems running through your city? I have no idea. Personally, I, I have no idea. Do you know? I have no, I mean, I, I, you could probably add some tangible benefits to yeah. the freight goods moving across the country. You know, I know like, you know, shipping people like UPS and the post office oftentimes will use train service for that. Lots of goods travel by train. Um, Memphis as sort of a, a railroad hub, you know, its economy is somewhat driven by, um, you know, sort of freight goods. But again, you know, we're not, I don't think with sort of our discussion here about sort of VC investment in transportation systems, we're quite sort of really totally focused on freight movement we're talking more about sort of personal you know people movement um but it, i would say to interrupt you yeah. that vcs are also investing in freight movement as well yeah yeah i i i i i, I definitely take that point um i just i wondered to the degree to which you know if is the if the railroad is an example of a of a privately held 
business that manages transportation, if we can make that analogy to the modern level of investment in transportation systems, if we have winners that come out of this investment and things change, you know, do we run the same? Is the railroad an appropriate example, I guess would be my question. I don't know is the real answer. And the the other the other side of that is my earlier comment where we did have private privately held transportation systems in the past, those companies have gone out of business. Yeah. So can you actually make money moving people in this kind of cloud I, mobility e- ecosystem? Yeah. I think that's the question. And I think in the meantime, you know, do transportation planning procedures and policies need to kind of react to having an influx of, you know, these privately run transportation options, you know, I think to your point about, you know, affecting transit times, you know, capacity of roads, you know, the way people are interacting with the transportation, you know, systems were potentially five years ago, there was just one option and that was a bus or or a subway. Um, Kind of how does from a government or, or planning department side, kind of react or do you not react at all? And then also, you know, from the investment piece as well, do cities, you know, from a federal, state and local side continue, you know, to invest in smart technologies alongside the the private investment or kind of how do those public and private entities kind of work together and create partnerships? I I think there are some... That was a lot there. Well, I know, but I think there's some mild examples for us to look at. There are examples of public transportation systems today that rely on private contractors to actually do the operations of their systems. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, one of the one of the big sort of talking points around sort of public transportation isn't just about how how that system serves the public in a community, but also how that system serves workers um, in that community. So a lot of a lot of a lot of times movements focused on transforming public transportation systems also focus on workers' rights and you know the drivers and the operators of that system also you know unionize in in, in, the, in a lot of cases to help sort of support their own um, uh, ecosystem within that. And so there are examples of where public transportation. privately contracts its operations i remember i remember being in melbourne australia a couple years ago and the host that i was staying with kept mentioning to me that it's not unusual in melbourne uh for a bus or a trolley to pass a stop without stopping to pick up passengers and the reason is mm-hmm. because there's a private company that that does their operations. You know, the municipality is is on the surface of it saving money by not having its own employees doing that service. And the, a part of their contract is they have performance measures in terms of like they have certain stops that they have to hit at certain times with with an accuracy. Um, you know, sort of on time pick up and drop off and. Oftentimes, if a driver is running late behind the schedule um, in order to meet the efficiency standards, the performance measures for their contract, stops in between those checkpoints can can sometimes get skipped as a result of that. And so you actually have a service that might be saving you money on the front end. You might be You might be able to contract with a private company cheaper than you could actually have a a fleet of employees running that service. 
Um, but the downside to that is that uh, you're actually running a service that is less than ideal and less than efficient because yeah. they're, they're so focused on meeting these benchmarks to maintain that contract. Yeah. Well, I think it's also, I'm interested that, so the shared use mobility center um, has entered into agreement with the federal transit administration to operate a new technical assistant effort to support kind of these implementations of mo mo mobility on demand or this cloud mobility from a private perspective. Um, and I'm interested to see kind of how that, how that works. Cause they're really focused on, you know, working with public private to, you know, explore new innovations around paratransit and fare integration and first last mile. And then they also have kind of outlined, you know, ways that in ensure that there's an equity of service, um, that there's a shared knowledge base between private companies in a city and the public side. Um, and I think that's an, an, an interesting model um, to see kind of going forward how that works. Now I really want to go to the Shared Mobility Conference this year. Well, I mean, here's an interesting thing. I, th I think, you know, one way where we're actually seeing this play out, may, potentially in a positive sense, is in the dockless bike share um, world. You know, I think to some of these questions around you know questions around sort of equity mm -hmm. i think we could have a conversation around whether dockless and we have you know in the past but you know it, it appears at a very sort of early stage of implementation in cities that dockless is beginning to address equity issues if if not purposefully at least uh, incidentally by having them present in communities um, I was just in D.C. last week and heard, again, more, heard more really important um, sort of anecdotes and stories about dockless bike share being used in D.C. and how it's serving a population that is different than uh, traditional capital bike share systems there. I heard, you know, our our friend of the podcast, Charles Brown, on stage at the National Bike Summit asking some panelists about whether or not they would, they, if they had the opportunity to put in a, doc, a, a bike share system today, would they go with traditional docked or dockless? Um, and Charles gave an answer about, you know, the con depending on the context, he would, he have a tendency to go with dockless as it's is able to address the equity concerns in a much more direct and easy to understand way. And that's, that's in spite of, right, some common objections around access to technology, access right. to internet and cell phones and data usage and those and credit cards, you know, kind of the things that, that on the surface of them fly in the face of what we know about equity around bike share. Um, Dockless seems to be solving that. You know, you asked a question earlier about, you know, how do cities sort of prepare for this wave of cloud mobility? I think we're also seeing how Dockless bike share systems um, – are demonstrating how some cities have not prepared for it and how some cities are. I think if we were to look at examples where dockless bike share is being sort of publicized as a failure or as a nuisance, as litter on the streets, you know, I'm thinking of examples like Dallas, uh, mm -hmm. Texas, uh, Tempe, Arizona came up recently in a, in a news thing that I saw. Um, I think we would also find that those cities did not do any preliminary legislative work to regulate or to harness, you know, how those systems were going to operate there. So now Dallas has 20,000 dockless bike shares, uh, doc, dockless uh, bikes, bike share bikes. That's a lot of, it's hard to describe those. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, 
but they have twenty thousand bikes on the street, and they didn't they didn't do anything to help sort of you know force those companies to monitor their usage or to make sure they were being used or stored in appropriate ways. And they're facing they're facing the backlash of that. And yet there's there's so many other cities. I'm thinking. Uh, right here, close to me, Aurora, Colorado. Um, Boulder is working on some stuff right now. Other cities, Washington D.C. as sort of a prime example, established some very easy to follow protocols in terms of how those systems were going to be maintained, how bikes could be stored, and put the burden on the companies to do that. And we're finding that the that those benefits actually there are actually looking pretty positive at the end of the day. And so, you know, in some ways dockless bikes of all that you you sent me a ton of information ahead of this um, conversation about to sort of talk about this interestingly enough dockless bicycling was not present in any of those however it seems to be leading some of the uh leading some of these conversations um in some practical ways yeah i was surprised by it not being mentioned though ofo and mobike um are called out just briefly about kind of being the top tier, you know, alongside Uber in terms of investment um, that's come from kind of VC. So uh, yeah, Mofo, Ofo and Mobike. Here, here's a question for you because I'm as yeah. I'm reading these stories you're sending me, what what dollar amount of investment sort of impresses you these days? That I don't know because, because I, I read I read this article where it is an interesting right about um I'm looking for it real fast oh so you sent me an article from techcrunch.com um about a new transportation fund that was just created by a group called Auto Tech Ventures three years old based in the Bay Area in California. And the headline reads that this fund just landed $120 million from a wide range of transport companies. Let me ask you this question. Does $120 million impress you in the in the no. landscape of what you know about VC capital now? It does not. Does it impress you? It doesn't. And I... And I, that's an interesting comment to make, I think, because if, I think if you, for instance, went to a city and said, I have $120 million to invest in your public transportation system, $120 million would go a long ways. Imagine if you had $120 million just to invest in bike share. Massive, right? Yeah, absolutely. You'd, you'd have bikes on every corner in the city of Memphis. But as I read this, it's it's funny how I think we've become a little desensitized to the the amount of money actually pouring into this. And now that I look, I read 120 million, I'm like, oh, those guys are pretty far behind, <laughs> right? When I know that Ofo and Mobike, right, have each raised more than a billion dollars each, that's that in my mind is sort of the new standard for the level of investment. But then I think about what could a billion dollars do? Oh, I remember in Memphis, a billion dollars could replace and reconstruct every single sidewalk throughout the city yeah. of Memphis. And so it it's it's interesting to sort of have a conversation around the level of money being poured in here, um, looking at it from a sense of like just look at look at all this money, and 
it it continues to beg this question that we asked earlier in this episode about whether or not these companies are ever actually going to make a profit at the end of the day. Yeah. That I don't know. This is a podcast full of questions. <laughs> so introspective. Well. I think that's a sign <laughs> of a really good theme. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe... Maybe it's not because we're supposed to be experts in this and giving other people information, not just our own questions. I think we're providing information. Yeah. We we haven't really dove into this yet, but you know, there's a big conversation around equity, around sort of the, the this cloud mobility and equity in the future. Um any thoughts any thoughts on that? I mean, I think that's a piece that's missing from you know, I haven't done a deep dive into all of the companies that that were being discussed today, um, but I think that's that's the unknown. I think anytime you start moving towards you know options that potentially just meet you know a certain audience that needs to have access you know to a piece of technology, and whether that's a smartphone or a credit card or X Y Z, you know, I do think that you know it could become inequitable. Um, and I think also, um, I just lost my train of thought. Um, and I think another piece, especially around the ride share piece that I've always thought about as kind of, you know, ride share and even on-demand transit relies on having people that will be paid whatever sort of wage to, you know, drive those vehicles and, you know, be, be that on-demand workforce, um, which I think opens up a whole nother list of questions about, you know, is the sharing economy actually beneficial to the workers that are being, that are participating in it, you know, as independent contractors that, that may not, you know, be getting health benefits or 401ks or part of a union kind of, what does the workforce look like from all of these sort of VC backed, mm-hmm. you know, cloud mobility um, companies look like as well? Um, I think that's a big piece is you need you need workers and, you know, are those workers being paid and treated equitably, equitable, equitable, be? I won't get that right today um, as well. Uh, you know, I. I really hate to sort of be a pessimist in general. But I have but I think there's so many unanswered questions about this whole subject that I that I just have to be and to to yeah. sort of make your remark I want to sort of like bring us back to my comments earlier about the railroads, right? The reason the railroads were able to get constructed and built was because you know they essentially you know, enslave people to work yeah. for them, you know, f- through a variety of different legal means. But the truth of the matter is, exploitive labor actually created the entire transportation system that the railroads now benefit from today. And you have to sort of, I think, I think we have to sort of draw some, some similar conclusions in the face of not having real answers to some of those questions today that much of this sharing economy might end up in the same way. Um, is is in some cases ending up in the same way you know there's definitely been some there's definitely you know if you google uber or lyft you know labor practices you'll find a number of stories where um where people sort of share the downside you know to this to this kind of economy um and so you know i 
I don't I don't really want to be sort of like totally negative. I don't want to be sort of, you know, the person that has a knee-jerk reaction to dockless bike share. We've had this conversation before. The, you know, the more that I learn about dockless bike share and I learn more about what the impact is actually having, the more positive I become about it. And so I, I want to leave that option open in this kind of discussion, but I just don't understand. It just doesn't seem like anybody's really figured that out today. And I can see why Goldman Sachs would say like, Hey, car ownership, personal transportation ownership is not going to change while this, while these new economies sort of emerge. And it's because I think people like me are like, well, I don't really know what's going to happen. Why would I, why would I get rid of something that I can trust and rely on to get to work or to pick up my kids from school? Why would I abandon this thing that I own, that I control, that I direct for a great big wide unknown? And uh, especially when I begin to see sort of like, you know, trillions of dollars in investment, that's not coming home to me right now. Right. And so, you know, it it may, maybe it feels good from an investment standpoint, but from a personal user standpoint, I'm not sure that it feels good today. I would agree with that statement. Sarah, you uh, didn't do us any favors by bringing an easy topic. Well, I thought, you know, I'd switch it up. I kept also, to be honest, I kept thinking of bike share related topics. Yep. And so I just needed to like stretch my brain. And this has been something I've been interested in. So even if we ended up with more questions than answers, you know, I hope I know that I enjoyed kind of diving into it. And I hope our, our listeners have as well. Well, I'm sure they have. Uh, folks out there in the World Wide Web, if you have some thoughts on this, if you have some news stories you want to share with us, some anecdotes to share. Hit us up on Twitter or the Facebook. Um, have you been you you've been on Twitter lately, Sarah? I have found someone on Twitter <laughs> who I want to ha- who I want to be on the podcast. I I tweeted at someone from the Bike Nerds. I know Twitter, and they responded. They responded with an email address, and then you texted me and said, "How do I respond to this person?" <laughs> and I my response was something cheeky like, "Write down the email address and send it send them an email." <laughs> I just—it's all so new, but I, I felt know, really I proud of myself. Well, welcome to the future. Thank uh, you. Episode eighty-eight. We moved eighty-eight miles per hour today. We went forwards. Yes. We went backwards in time. We're back to the future. Uh, I'm three D printing. I mean, maybe yes. soon we'll just be three three D printing bicycles here in my basement. Or the podcast will be a hologram of us. Whoa! That, I would have to like uh, actually comb my hair then. Yeah, that. me too. So. <laughs> Maybe not then. All right. Uh, thank thank you again, Sarah, for bringing this uh, topic to the discussion. Hope everyone had a great uh, time listening to Sarah and I just ask each other questions <laughs> with no answers. And uh, if you've got a billion dollars to invest in something, consider investing in the Bike Nerds podcast. Absolutely. The Bike Nerds Podcast is a joint production of the Bike Nerds, Sarah, and Kyle, and the OEM Network based in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, visit theoemnetwork.com slash thebikenerds. Want to nerd out more? Find us on the web at thebikenerdspodcast.com, on Twitter at thebikenerds, and on Facebook, The Bike Nerds Podcast. Drop us a note or recommend another bike nerd to have on the show by sending us an email at thebikenerdspodcast at gmail.com.